0: everybody welcome back to uptime we have a great show for this week we're going to talk about floating solar and why rosemary does not like floating solar and then we're going to look at floating wind that is powering oil and gas rigs off the coast of norway which rosemary again doesn't like but then we're going to talk about something rosemary really doesn't like which is toyota making hydrogen capsules you can take home and power your microwave with and then we'll have a guest interview with nicholas godern cto of power curve where we'll discuss the next generation of vortex generators So stay tuned. We'll be back after the music. German energy firm RWE is investing in a pilot project centered around the deployment of a floating solar technology up in the North sea. And they're calling it a floating solar park. And it's going to be installed off the waters off of the coast of Belgium. It's going to be a half a megawatt peak plant. And the company that's developing this floating solar system, I guess the solar system, does that sound right? <laughs> that sounds odd. This company is named solar duck and it's a floating platform so it's a it, rosemary if you haven't seen this it's a it's a triangular set of solar panels on three legs that float above the the, the the surface of the ocean and they connect together kind of like legos in in a sense they kind of click together so it, it's a floating moving platform with a bunch of floats on it and then they anchor it to the ocean floor on the corners so you got this big triangular floating I guess they can mix, make it into different shapes, I suppose. Uh, you got this big floating thing out in the ocean that is collecting solar energy. So the, the goal of solar Duck is to use this demonstration to show that they can do this on, on a grander scale. And uh, I guess other p- companies are doing it. Uh, there's an energy firm, the Portuguese energy firm, EDP, is um, is opening a five-megawatt floating solar park. So there's there's more than one company doing this. Solar Duck is based in the Netherlands. Uh, at least that's what they show up on on Google. Uh, they may be based in other places, but that's what it shows for. Shows them for. Uh, does but does this make any sense? Is, do we
1: need floating solar? Um, I, I have I actually just recently put floating solar on my list of things that I have to cover because it. I have never seen the point, but there are enough projects like this, enough serious money going into them that I feel like I have to engage more. Um, I think it's just because, especially for offshore, I can understand it in, um, you know, in hydro reservoirs, that makes more sense to me because one, it's a much less harsh operating environment. Two, it saves a bunch of problems existing problems with the, um, hydro or pumped hydro. So, you know, it'll reduce evaporation. You've already got the connections there, Mm um, electrical connections there, and, uh, you've already got maintenance crews that are going to be going out there. Um, I, I can see that, yeah, you get a bit more better efficiency from, um, the solar panel. If you've got it on water, then it's being cooled and, um, yeah, uh, something that I covered with. I think Glenn Ryan's been on this show too, but I, I went and had a look at his Eight system, um, which is all about cooling solar panels to get better efficiency right. out of them, and it can make quite a quite a difference. So you can get some um, something out of it there. And then the other benefit would be that you're not taking up land in places that are land constrained. So I guess that's one kind of benefit that doesn't sound so valuable to me because we've got heaps of. Heaps of land, (laughs) land around in Australia, just waiting to put solar panels on, you know, whether it's on people's roofs or, you know, just in areas, um, you can combine it with agriculture, agrivoltaics. So yeah, there's some benefits, but putting them offshore, (laughs) just having this flexible, constantly moving electrical connections. Offshore, um, salty environment—it just sounds horrible, <laughs> horrible to maintain. Just absolutely horrible. Um, and so, to me, it always looked like way more trouble than it's worth. Just put them on land, or yeah, on some fresh, fresh water where you you need a solution to evaporation. Yeah, but like I said, so many so many of these projects are popping up that i feel like maybe the economics has changed and i need (laughs) need to revisit and reassess my you know my interpretation of all the trade-offs involved i
2: can see some advantages in the in the on the development side uh simply because as as we move forward into wanting to make the the actual energy transition more more green in, in marketing um we also want it to actually be more green right so when you do an onshore um a uh, photo like utility scale photovoltaic park a uh, solar park there's when you look at these things there's 10 pile drivers out there there's a half a dozen d7 to d10 big dozers burning diesel fuel uh, you know sc- scaring up the earth and it, and it takes a long time to install these things you know you might be a six-month project to to install a you know a large-scale one uh, so if you can build these things keyside in a facility that exists and then dump them in the water and go out might be more or or, uh, how do you say like i guess less carbon intensive to build them in the development stage uh but on the other side of this one here offshore i i'm with you rosemary i don't see any way this thing survives when they talk about going if you're saying in in a in a uh, pumped hydro reservoir that's one thing you might get two three four foot waves in that you're offshore in the north sea i mean you can have 20 meter rollers coming through like that, there's nothing that can survive that. Yeah. Not right. to mention the
1: salt water. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So does the system make sense from a political standpoint because it's not seen? That's, I think what we're seeing in a big push for offshore wind in the United States is that it gets it off the land. So there's less complaints from my local constituents. I don't have to hear them complaining about the wind turbine in their backyard. So there's, there's a big push for offshore wind in the States. Does solar have to deal with that same thing like where are you going to put off where are you going to put solar in New York City you're going to put it offshore where are you going to put it in New Jersey where are you going to put it in North Carolina where are you going to put it in South Carolina where right so does it then lend itself politically to be an easier solution where I don't have to go find these places on land to develop I just stick it out in the ocean does that make sense
1: yeah I think that that's the only part of it that makes sense (laughs) I know we <laughs> talked
0: about years ago. No, not years ago. How long have we have been doing this podcast? Like two years. Maybe it was a year ago. We were talking about uh, the, the electricity in, in the cables on, uh, offshore affecting animals, uh, little sea creatures. Uh, the brown crab, if I remember right off the coast of the UK, would get confused. Yeah, the mag- those magnetic
1: field. Yeah. yeah.
0: It confuses them as to where to go. They just kind of <laughs> just stop stop moving. Yeah. Uh, w- <laughs> Are, are we going to do something similar to what these floating <laughs> platforms, are Are, are shark, sharks sharks going to be attracted? Is a whale going to come up and bump into them? Did you see that picture of the whale jumping on that boat the other day? I think that was in the United States where the whale just flopped onto this boat, I think off the coast of New York. Yeah, like, what? There's just so many weird things can happen in the ocean. I'm sort of with Joel here where... Uh, I think that the North Sea as being this really scary, terrible place when when the weather gets nasty. I don't know what lives out there. It's hard. I assume they lose boats out there all the time. How are they not going to have difficulty (laughs) with solar panels?
1: Maybe they don't. Yeah, well, I think that there are a few of these floating solar, offshore floating solar projects or pilot projects that have been installed around the world. So... At least soon, we should have information about um, what the maintenance is like in in reality. Because at the moment, I think most people (laughs) talking about it are just you know doing thought experiments, imagining what it's going to be like. Um, So, yeah, I think this is really one of those things where you need to just put it out there and see see what happens. I was just thinking, it makes sense that
2: RWE is doing it then, because you would almost you, you you would have to self insure it. So there has to be someone doing it that has. The amount of capital that if they had something went wrong, they would eat it, right? Like no insurance company is going to pick up the insurance on one of these right now.
0: Yeah. There's if we no can't one. insure wind turbines for lightning, we have a hard time with solar panels <laughs> out on the ocean, I think. But, you know, recently you saw that Hawaii yeah. is, is is in the process of shutting down, I think it's its last coal plant. They're, they're taking the last couple of deliveries of coal to the islands of Hawaii. And they're really concerned about that because- that's a significant producer of electricity for the for the island. Maybe solar, floating solar makes sense in some place like Hawaii. Maybe that's that's a solution. I, I know they have bad weather there too, but I think there are a lot of island nations where this Puerto Rico, Haiti, where this may make a lot of sense because it's sort of you just drag it in and connect it.
1: I think we will all depend on land availability for onshore solar. I'd be really surprised if offshore solar ever. Competes with onshore solar where it's possible to put it in. I know it's a little bit more efficient because it's cooled, but other than that, it's all downsides um, and some, you know, big downsides. And in fact, if you go on the Solar Duck website, land scarcity is the only, <laughs> the only point that they they raise about why you need to put solar panels offshore. So I'm imagining that it could make sense for places like, um, like really densely populated. Uh, islands like you know Japan, Singapore, um, places like that. Maybe they can get a little bit, a little bit more uh, energy security, a little bit more domestic energy if they, um, yeah, go for floating solar in addition to the mm. floating wind or yeah, I guess any kind of offshore wind.
2: You know, a few a few years ago, uh, out in California, they were in some of their water reservoirs. They were dumping truckloads of these black plastic balls. And the black plastic balls were dumped into these reservoirs to combat um, evaporation evaporation of the water, mm. right? So maybe this is a solution that can help uh, places like that as well. And that, I mean, this, of course, is not onshore. This is or not offshore. This is onshore. Mm. But it's going back to the same thing Rosemary said. If it's in a pumped hydro facility or something of that sort, uh, then it. I think it makes sense to do that. Mm. I mean, you're not going to have the wild weather and things, so you have that little bit of cooling. You're maybe saving some evaporation in the water supply. So I like that idea, but I don't, I just don't know about the North yeah. Sea.
1: I think that one place where offshore does make sense, and Alan, you're going to be surprised to hear me say this, but for offshore oil and gas projects, I think that – There, I know that they do need remote renewable electricity. And you might say, oh, well, you know, we're in an energy transition. There won't be any fossil fuel extraction in, uh, you know, in 20, 30 years. But if you look at that net zero um, roadmaps, you know, from the IEA, for example, there is still a bunch of of fossil fuels. um, And a large chunk of it is not for burning. It's for, you you know, making stuff like plastics, for example, um, which – you know, we're probably still going to need in in 2050, and then there's some hard to abate sectors that are you know going to have to be, um, yeah, uh, <laughs> applications where we still will be burning fossil fuels and then offsetting the emissions. But there's a lot of um, energy needed for processing, and at the moment, you know, they're they're burning gas or. Or something, some other fossil fuel to get that energy, and I know that plenty of these oil and gas companies are looking to, um, you know, to decarbonize at least that part of their, um, of their emissions. And it's really easy to just kind of get really cynical about these companies, and you know, just call it all greenwashing. <laughs> um, but we are. The reality is that we do need these industries. That. At least these industries are highly likely to still exist in a net zero world, and so they also need to be cleaned up. And it might not be, you know, a huge part of the energy transition, but um, there are going to be need to be um, offshore um, renewable generation and energy storage are, are going to be some, you know, big large niches. I think uh, for uh, applications. So yeah, sure. yeah I would suggest that that is would be it- a good good starting place for a tech like this because those companies have, have enough money to, um, <laughs> to deal with a you know, a pilot project that you know ends up costing more than they expected, needing more maintenance than they expected. Yeah, so just
0: two pieces of this, and this is a good bridge to the next segment. We get a lot of comments on YouTube from people who are saying, uh, well wind turbines have petroleum products, When the wind turbine fell over in Sweden last week, they dumped a bunch of oil into the landscape. Yeah, everybody realizes that there's petroleum and wind. Everybody realizes there's petroleum making solar cells. Everybody gets that. It gets us the question of, and Rosemary and I and Joel are not saying we're going to eliminate oil. I don't think that's the question at all. The question is, how do you find a good balance here, everybody? And to assume engineers are hardliners in anything, I think is a wrong move. Engineers are... Probably the most common sense level headed people you're ever gonna run across. We're, tr- we're trying to find solutions for everybody, right? We're trying to to, to help the environment, provide electricity, keep the lights on, <laughs> make sure you have a car to drive to work. Those kind of things. It, it's just it's a there's a very hard line. It's like there's only two levels here. Either you're for petroleum and you're and you're trying to destroy the earth, or you're against petroleum and you're an environmental nut job. <laughs> there is there's is, there is, it's just weird right now i and maybe it's the twitterization of of the world but it just sucks because you like to be able to have real discussions with people about what your future is likely to be and we're missing the we're missing those discussions and instead instead it becomes political and that's one thing that we're not on this show we're just not trying to become political
2: Get the latest on wind industry news, business, and technology sent straight to you every week. Sign up for the Uptime Tech Newsletter at weatherguardwind.com news.
0: Equinor is developing wind turbines, floating wind turbines, which is actually the, the largest offshore floating wind farm off the coast of Norway. And it's going to power, of all things, oil rigs, oil and gas rigs out in the ocean. And so this this project is about a hundred megawatt project, about a half a million dollars uh, for the whole thing. And it's going to keep these oil and gas fields uh, with electricity. It's going to provide about a third of their annual power needs. Uh, so they're, they're putting out Siemens Gamesa 8.6 megawatt machines, which are pretty good size machines. And they're installed on floating concrete structures. And I didn't understand this. floating Concrete doesn't float to me. But it's on floating concrete structures uh, <laughs> that are sort of interconnected and share an anchoring system, and is supposed to prod- start producing power in a couple of weeks. Now, again, going back to your point, Rosemary, uh, oil and gas rigs use a lot of le- use a lot of energy. If we can do it more cleanly than they are in the past, that's awesome. But there's a big pushback against this, saying, "Well, why are you helping these oil and gas rigs off the coast of Norway? Don't the Norwegians know you can't use oil and gas?" Why are we helping them? And I think that is. What are your two cents on that?
1: I do have two cents on this, <laughs> on the Norwegians. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to start by saying that Norway is, is literally my favorite country to to travel to. It's it's beautiful. All of my best holidays I've ever had in my life have all been in Norway, up 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 north, doing ski tours or surfing or um, anything. It's it's incredibly beautiful. However, I do find that Norwegians are quite smug about their um, energy transition and how far they've progressed for people who (laughs) have funded it entirely through (laughs) fossil fuel money. Um, And one time I was in the, uh, there's this beautiful archipelago um, called the Lofoten Peninsula. It's a series of islands where the mountains just go straight down to the ocean. Did a a ski trip there and um, we always planned to go back to do a surf trip but didn't didn't make it. And while I was there, they had just um, announced that they were not going to explore any more fossil fuel um, resources in the Lofoten archipelago because it's such a beautiful natural area. And simultaneously, they're attempting to Equinor is attempting to start this big project in um, the Great Australian Bite, which is a very beautiful Australian area. Um, and just the hypocrisy of it to me was like too too much to, to handle. That yeah, okay, we're so environmental um, in Norway, but they do continue to expand their um, their operations, and and that's the reason why they have been early adopters of all these you know green technologies because they've it's a very rich country and. Um, um, I don't think anybody would pretend that Norway wasn't rich through fossil fuel profits. So, yeah, there is <laughs> there is that level of of hypocrisy there that I find a bit hard. But like I was just saying before, fossil fuels are not going to go away entirely, and Norwegian fossil fuels are done better than most. If you look at the um, like leakage and um, supply chain emissions. If you get it from a Norwegian project, your, your natural gas say, it is far, far, far less emissions intensive than um, those same kinds of projects from many other countries. So, yeah, it's, it's not really black and white um, in my mind, Norway, <laughs> with, their, yeah, with their fossil fuels.
0: So the, most people in America wouldn't realize that Norway is a big oil country it doesn't seem obvious. It, it seems cold. It seems like to be a lot of fishing. Uh, and our only connection to Norway is what we see in Walt Disney World at Epcot. They had a big exhibition there for a long time. I think they still do, but you go on this little log flume ride and you end up in this area where there's a big mural of offshore oil rigs. That What's the thing? I mean, that's, that's within the last 10 years, I'd say uh, that was still there. So there, you know, obviously uh, Norway has a lot of, of energy in there. And I, I know it's a big point of contention by some of the countries, but it isn't like Norway's uh, not looking at renewables. So they haven't shunned it, right? It seems like they're just trying to figure out a way to... Let me ask you,
1: there's pumped hydro in Norway, right? And they have hydro their, and they've had hydro for also, a long time. Like every other country with really great hydro resources, that made economic sense way before anybody cared about climate change. So, and that's you know supplies the majority of their um, electricity, and so they've got a very clean electricity grid, and they you know they export their their oil and gas. Yeah, but in terms of wind farms, I mean, it's they they hate wind in Norway. Is the impression I get? You only hear about it in the news when there's um you know some some protest or you know they're rescinding permission to build a, a wind farm because of community opposition or you know something like that. So I don't get Sweden the impression seems to be that, that way too. Uh, although Sweden has a lot of really good news stories for renewables for wind and um, for wind True. mostly, um, at, whereas I only seem to only the negative ones about Norway seem to make it this far south anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't get the impression that Norwegian people in general are really. Pro wind energy, anyway. um Even though I know that they're usually like culturally, they're pretty environmentally, and where they get aware, they get out of in nature a lot um, in Norway, which I think helps um, people, you know, care about protecting their environment. um But I think that that's also what's causing them to be, you know, a lot of Norwegians to be anti wind because, you know, it affects the local environment. Um, it's They've got sure. a lot of beautiful fjords around. They don't necessarily want wind turbines in in a lot of them.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. I, but every, everybody's making some change into their energy system. It isn't like Norway's alone and Sweden. It is isn't either. The United States is part of that same mix. You get the same questions out of the United States. I, I don't think they're any different. I what I do see is things are going to drastically change over the next twenty to twenty five years, and whether they they find a way to deal with it. They probably will. I mean, they'll find a way that's a Norwegian way. The Swedes will find a Swedish way. The Americans will find an American way, but I think we're all going to get there.
2: I don't think they're doing the right thing here by, you know, it may be annoying for them to stare at other people and say like, why aren't you doing it right. the same way we're doing it? Well, you guys are, have a lot more money than we do. <laughs> so it's easier yeah. for you to make those adjustments. <laughs> does help? I mean, that's as simple yeah. as it is, right? It does help. Like, um, so I think what you'll see there is of course, this is the first offshore wind farm, the first big one there. Uh, not the first, but the first big one, there will be more and more and more all up and down. The I think so coast. too. Anytime you see, you know, off the coast of Stavanger, you'll have one. You'll have every major city along that uh, coastline, you'll have it. And it's part of it is driven by the, not in yes. my backyard because the landscape is so beautiful. The good wind resources also right in the, at the top of the crest of that fjord. Right. So <laughs> they're not going to want to install in there. I I get it. Um, it's also not that, um, because they've come f- quite far in the transition, uh, quite a lot further than most developed nations, uh, they uh, don't use as much true. electricity as, as some others do. Yeah, right. So, and and the population is fairly small, in in reality. So e- the transition will be easier for them.
0: I, I agree. And and let Rosemary back in if she wants to go skiing there.
1: <laughs> yeah, now I'm not border. allowed in. That would be devastating <laughs> to me. I just, I, yeah, I do love it there, and and I would say I don't want to see wind turbines in all those fjords either. Uh, I mean, I'd be happy for for a few projects around, but. Um, they, the electricity grid is already so green I don't see why you need to put them there. Um, there's other places in Europe that you can put yeah. wind turbines and everyone's connected and yeah. uh, everybody that's connected to Norway's hydro loves the security that that provides for the you know the wind in the, the UK or um, yeah or elsewhere right. in Europe. so uh, I think that they're playing a, a different role and they that's that's correct you know
0: All right Toyota is a Toyota of the automobile maker is developing portable hydrogen cartridges. I don't know if everybody's seen this on the web. I I stumbled across it a couple of weeks ago, and I just thought it was interesting. Why is Toyota working on portable hydrogen? Well, I I think they're trying to figure out the politics of energy in Japan and probably the United States. And if hydrogen is is going to become the renewable energy of choice, that means you're going to have to get hydrogen almost everywhere. How How are you going to do that? Well, Toyota has come up with these cartridges that are about uh, a foot and a half long. Sorry, I'm going to speak in it American American terms. It weighs about 11 pounds. So, what they envision is sort of you you drop off this little cartridge at your local retailer, grocery store, Toyota dealer, and you pick up a new one that's full and you, and you take it back to the house or your apartment and use it for energy. They say that one of those cartridges will hold about enough electricity to power a microwave for three to four hours. Now why they chose to power a microwave for three to four hours as their example doesn't make a lot of sense to me because I don't know who is doing that, but okay. And maybe Rosemary, you can run the calculations there to determine how much power this little cartridge has. Uh, But hydrogen, it's one of those low carbon fuels. And I think they're getting pushed by the government to try to figure out if they can adopt clean hydrogen. Is is that the way of the future? Joel, are you and I going to be cooking hot dogs on a hydrogen grill? Is that kind of kind of where this is going? Because that's what those cartridges look like. Is they look like something like a small propane tank?
2: I guess you think about that. What is what is something in that same form factor yeah. used for today, and how well has that been adopted? So you have the little what are they? We call them two and a half pound right. tanks, right? The little tiny yes. propane tanks. use basically, I use those for my my camping right. stove. Um, I think I use one in my like mosquito machine. Yeah, that's true. Mosquitoes away. Uh, sitting on the deck in the Midwest, um, and I think that's you about have it. to get rid of that. Oh, Joel, wait a second. Hey, my,
0: did you tell Rosemary? My pro- did hey. you tell Rosemary what the what the mosquito <laughs> machine actually does? It attracts mosquitoes. No, I'm not okay, going to say so. It, it, it attracts mosquitoes <laughs> by creating CO2. Right, so
1: oh, mosquitoes yeah, find
0: does. humans because we emit CO2. So they're like mosquitoes are like little CO2 attractive insects, and that's how they find you. And, and, a, and a couple other things, but yeah. So you make these mosquito traps. You you burn propane. It makes CO two, and the mosquitoes are attracted to it. There you go.
2: You will also attract every frog. Oh, that's cool. The that's, yeah. They will sit. Right, they'll sit right out in front of your mosquito cap. You know, capture and wait and uh, eat all the mosquitoes as yeah. they come in. I said I would say the only other thing that I use uh, those little propane cylinders for is my ice auger for ice fishing. Oh. So, with that being with that being said, I don't see a lot of use for them for this this idea. It's simply just because there's things that exist in that same form factor, different fuel of course, but they're they're kind of a pain, and I don't really use them.
0: Yeah, it doesn't seem like a, in a a really good system. But if Toyota is trying to introduce this introduce hydrogen to the consumer. What's one way to do it? Do it around things you use in the household. That way you build a, a comfort level with using hydrogen. I don't, Rosemary shaking her head. And I would, as a, the engineer in me, agrees agree with the Rosemary because hydrogen is, unless they make a scent to it, I always, hydrogen doesn't smell like anything. It's very light and it burns <laughs> clear. You can't see it burn. So if it's burning, you can't tell it except for the heat that's coming off of it. It doesn't seem like a very consumer friendly fuel to use in an apartment
1: no um there's so many so many problems with this and i mean so there's a a lot of you know i often complain about things people want to do with hydrogen and i I, no
0: (laughs) really,
1: and you might think (laughs) that this is just more of that my opinion on on these cartridges is just more of that but it's like they don't take any of the uh, the reason why people propose hydrogen for so many things is because there's a lot of, you know, problems that are hard to solve that even though hydrogen is inefficient and expensive, difficult to transport um, and uh, explosive, you know, because the problem that it, they're trying to solve is hard enough, you would consider hydrogen. But here they've got a product trying to solve a bunch of easy problems that already have solutions and they want to add in all those things. Um, I just think that's that's incredible. And does anybody actually, I mean, I have a SodaStream machine and we just had like a month or oh, two yeah. months soda streamless because neither of us could be bothered to go change the cartridge. And we even recently bought a second cartridge so that, you know, we could always have one swapped and ready to go. And of course, we just ran out both cartridges. Um, so I don't think I'm abnormally lazy. My, my partner might <laughs> might suggest the opposite but (laughs) I just why would you do that if you could just connect something to electricity and just power it off that and I mean any of the things that they're that they're saying you would do with this you know it's still a small amount of energy in this this cartridge um any you can electrify any of those things and in fact they mostly are already electrified why would you go to something that bring something explosive and expensive and inconvenient into your home um, to replace something that is already perfectly well served by electricity. It's just, it's total nonsense. I just don't even know why you would bother even, you know, mocking up a, a little plastic representation of what this hydrogen cartridge would look like because it just shouldn't have made it out of that initial, you know, like boardroom brainstorming session. <laughs> it belongs on the whiteboard and never, never progress further. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'll, I'll give you a, a similar comparison. Is it a, maybe it's an analogy. It's not it's not an analogy, but it's close. Years ago, I was at the Indianapolis 500 Speedway. Uh, it's in the springtime. The big race is going to happen in a couple of weeks, and we're at this uh, event for s- solar vehicles. Of all things, we had a solar car um, race that we were participating in at the college. And at that place, they had a coal-fired car. Like, they, like, it was a car that was driven, fueled by coal. And I thought, that is just the bizarrest thing. Why does someone bring a coal-fired car to a solar-powered car race? And the reason is, is that coal was making an argument like, hey, we can be used in different forms, right? And I think this is the problem with hydrogen, is no one sees it as being a, a vehicle fuel. They see it as being the Hindenburg. <laughs> so you have to find a way to bridge that gap between... Uh, I, uh, a cleaner fuel, I guess, and rosemary. I know there's all problems with hydrogen. I yeah, get it. it could be but a cleaner f- fuel. Have I to have to, find to correct a you
1: there. It's not currently a cleaner fuel. <laughs> it's currently a more dirty fuel, but it could be cleaner one day when we. It could be. Yeah, when Someday. we have more green hydrogen Someday. than than we need to use for existing applications. Yeah, just <laughs> just had to so add I'm that. Fill our trunk. full <laughs> <Yes. laughs> I'm
0: gonna fill our. Our trunks Joel with these hydrogen cartridges so that we can power the microwave at the house. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Seems like where it's going. Yeah. Oh, the microwave <laughs> yeah. example is just yeah. the best because it's just like so detached from reality. Uh, yeah, I don't know how many of your view of our viewers uh, have <laughs> are fans of the movie Mean Girls. <laughs> But that's the perfect, perfect analogy from from there. I'm going to make it anyway. Maybe let's see if anyone comments, if anyone gets it. It's too late now. (laughs) Toyota just needs to stop trying to make fetch happen with hydrogen. They're just just trying and trying and trying to make hydrogen a thing for, you know, for anything. Um, (laughs) This is just. This is just a step too far. I, you know, I've gotten used to them pursuing it with passenger cars. That <laughs> makes a million times more sense than these cartridges, and it doesn't make much sense. So, yeah, move on, hydrogen. Um, sorry, move on, Toyota. Please, <laughs> you're embarrassing yourselves. So,
0: Rosemary, Rosemary votes no. Joel and I are going to abstain. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, and and on Wednesdays, yes, we wear exactly.
1: Pink. <laughs> oh, I am wearing, I am wearing pink, kind of, but it's it's Tuesday here now, currently. <laughs>
2: oh,
0: no. So next, we have an interview with Nicholas Gardern, CTO of Power Curve, and he's going to describe a, a new invention. It's an update on vortex generators called Dragon Scales. Really cool update improves the efficiency of vortex generators by a good bit so this is a really interesting interview stay tuned for nicholas Godern of power curve
2: lightning is an act of god but lightning damage is not actually is very predictable and very preventable strike tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by weatherguard it dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS, so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today.
0: Well, Nicholas, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Nicholas Godern, everybody, CTO of PowerCurve, and PowerCurve is a deep, intensive company focused on blade aerodynamics and blade improvements and blade add-ons to make your blades perform even better than what the OEM even envisioned. And Nicholas, welcome back in the, on the podcast.
3: Yeah, thanks a lot, Alan. It's really nice to to come back on. Um, yeah, looking forward to talking to you today about um, the exciting topics we've prepared together. The one hot topic,
0: which appeared on LinkedIn recently, is something called dragon scales. And you just kind of Announce it to the world on LinkedIn, like, oh,
3: <laughs> Nicholas has been working on something really cool here, so let's hear about it. Yeah, yeah, we kind of just uh, kind of throw it out there. Yes. What are dragon scales? The dragon scales are a new type of vortex generator. So they are still a vortex generator. Um, they still can be used in the ways we use vortex generators today, and I guess we'll, we'll get into that later. But the whole idea of the dragon scale is to make a better vortex generator. And by better, we mean one that still does uh, the great job that VGs do. So they recover loss lift or they boost lift where you need it, but to do that with lower drag. So you will put the VGs on the blade, they'll still have that great beneficial effect, but the drag of the VG itself, the dragon scale, is lower than a standard VG. So that means on any given installation, that array will give you more AEP. Uh,
0: We're going to put the image of dragon scales on the YouTube version of this podcast. So if you're listening to the audio version, you want to go to YouTube so you can actually see these dragon scales. But Nicholas, can you describe visually what dragon scales look like? Because they're different than standard VGs.
3: A standard VG, uh, typically in in the wind turbine world, is a uh, a triangular fin sticking up from the blade pretty much uh, vertically. So it's just a triangle when you look at it from the side. You see a few of the different kinds of VGs out in the world, but the triangular VG is is dominant. So with the Dragon Scale, um, it looks very different. Uh, Firstly, because there's not just one element to to the vortex generator. We actually have uh, multiple fins, if you want to call them multiple fins, making up the Dragon Scale VG. So I think in the image you can uh, see on the YouTube version, we have uh, three fins instead of one Triangular fin, and if you actually look at those fins from above, you will see that they are not flat plates. So again, typically VGs they're a flat plate, just very simple two D thing. The dragon scale is fully three dimensional, so it actually looks like a number of little airfoils stacked one behind the other. And you can imagine maybe if you took like a slice through um, an aircraft wing, for example, when it was taking off and the slats are extended. Uh, or if you were to take a slice through uh, the front wing of a racing car, an Indy car or something, um, then you would see this kind of cascade or multiple aerofoil configuration. So the Dragon Scale is taking a little bit of inspiration from that.
0: Yeah, it kind of looks like the sort of the leading edge or the, the, the front end of a Formula One car, a modern Formula One car, is what Dragon Scales look like. The existing VGs sort of look like Something out of nineteen eighties automobile racing, and it, there's a huge difference between those two, right? Yeah, maybe, maybe even older. Yeah, yeah, right. It, it seems to be a lot more aerodynamic, and when you you see for the first time, you're like, oh, that's that makes a lot of sense. It seems like a modern take on vortex generators, and we haven't had much
3: change in vortex generators ever, really, on wind. No, no, no. We really, we really wanted to. To focus on that because you know a VG is is a great product. I think basically all of the major OEMs are using VGs, so they're very accepted within the industry. But that I think has made the development side of things very complacent. Everyone knows that VGs are useful and and work, so it's just kind of there as a thing. It's um it's kind of strange that no one's really come out of the box and said, well, a VG doesn't have to look like this. There are so many ways you can create a vortex it doesn't have to be a triangular plate so we just really um push the boat out in terms of the imagination and the r and d effort to to say well how can we do this in a in a with a modern twist what can we what can we use all of this advanced CFd that we now have at our fingertips what can we use that for can we use it to iterate very quickly on lots of different designs you know? We've got some great new wind tunnels around the world. The, the Danish Technic University DTU at uh, Rizu has this wonderful new uh, wind tunnel that the industry is is using. And it allows you to test at very high Reynolds numbers on very big aerofoils. So we just kind of wanted to use all these tools that we had at our disposal. Brand new wind tunnels, high Reynolds number wind tunnels, uh, lots of CPU power for CFD. Let's just bring all those things together and and use it to make something that just Pushes the the boundary a little bit.
0: So these new dragon scales are they different in terms of where they will be installed on the blade? Does that does that change chord wise, like front to back on the blade, or is it basically in the same location that like we typically see?
3: It's a really good question. So the way we designed the dragon scale, in order to sort of be to be fair when we're making the comparisons in CFD in the wind tunnel, was to say the position's the same as today. So we have a triangular fin, we have a dragon scale fin, which does better, and the dragon scale does a lot better. But what this um, also means is we haven't gone into all the possibilities of how we can really take advantage of this extra performance from the dragon scale. So if we just were to replace an existing VG array with a dragon scale VG array, you would get more AP. Easy, very, very straightforward. But what we can now dig into is if we shift the cordwise positions a bit, if we shift the spacing a little bit, if we shift the heights a little bit, maybe we can squeeze even more out of it. Um, and that's going to be really exciting as the next phase of development to see, you know where where can this, um, where can this take us? But that, the only way
0: you can do that is with the technology that you have in, in that you do true CFD analysis on blades. And a lot of the blades that are designed and out in the field today, have not had any CFD analysis done on them. It, it, it's, I think it's kind of assumed that the OEMs are doing that, but they're typically not. They're using BEM to the analysis, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. So I think um, if you look at any blade that's uh, more than five or six years old, and actually probably even a lot more, more recent than that, no, they haven't had much, if any, CFD work done on them at all. And traditionally, that was because it was very computationally expensive, and also, BEM does work well. And if you're always just focusing on making the rotor bigger, making the rotor bigger, make the, then you're not trying to squeeze every last drop out of a rotor because your focus as a business, someone like Vestas, GE Siemens, is just getting the next product out. So I think, you know, Power Curve, we have a very different uh, objective, of course. We're not designing uh, new blades and selling wind turbines, we're trying to optimize blades that already exist so that means you know we put a lot of focus on that cfd that deep aerodynamic understanding because it allows us to optimize rotors that may have not had all the attention they could have had spent on them and that's fine you know an oem has a lot of different constraints to to meet whereas we're we're focused on just maxing out the the performance within the envelope we have
0: with vgs there's a Consistent question about adding any VG or any aerodynamic modification on to a blade is, does it affect the blade structure? Is it going to cause things to wear out sooner? I, I've seen that question pop up even more recently. Are there are there issues with VGs in terms of uh, load and performance
3: overall, lifetime-wise? In the industry, there's been a few examples of some, some aerodynamic upgrades that maybe weren't um, thought through as well as there could have been, there's been some really kind of huge devices stuck onto blades. And although they've been shown to add performance, generally, if you're adding something that can attract a lot of load, like become a load carrying structure in its own right, or it really changes the stiffness distribution of the blade, that can lead to some issues. But for the add-ons that PowerCo provides, um, VGs, gurney flaps, serrations, they're very small, light pieces of plastic. So they're not in any way going to attract any load. They're not going to become a load carrying or a, or a stressed component. And in order to really dig into to that and how it impacts the turbine, we've actually gone through a really detailed um, validation study with uh, UL, uh, the, the certification body. So what we've done together with the UL is we have got them to assess all of our design methodology and go right back to basics. Everything we do in a design, CFD, CAD, FEA, air elastics, they've gone through with a fine tooth comb, every one of our processes, kind of like a vetting process, if you will. And then we've had to submit a lot of documentation talking about how our products um, are manufactured and how they're installed. And after all this assessment, to the IEC standard, um, UL were able to issue us a statement saying that, according to this assessment, the PowerCurve VG and uh, Gurney Flat products can be considered a load neutral. So what that means is if you put it on a wooden turbine, those products are not going to damage the gearbox, the tower, the foundations. They're not going to have any adverse effects on those other components that isn't already considered within the certification margin or the safety margin of, of that machine.
0: Well, that's good. That's a really serious concern and and... Glad you guys answered that. So what a VG does on a blade, there's a a, sort of a little trick that a VG does, right? On a lot of airfoils, airplane airfoils, wind turbine blades, (laughs) Formula One cars, there's a a point in which you have separation for a variety of reasons, regardless of what causes separation. So the, the VGs basically take the air and shove it back down into the blade to make, not so much more lip at less drag or what what's, what's the aerodynamic description of what they do?
3: Kind of a bit of both kind of a bit of both. So I think I like to, to think of a vortex generator as, um, as kind of affecting the health of a boundary layer. So the boundary layer being that thin layer of flow, that's very close to the surface of an airfoil. That's where all the action happens. That's all the forces are interacting to give you flow separation, flow attachment, laminar turbulent transition, all these things that affect a turbine performance kind of all goes on in the boundary layer. So when that boundary layer um, is unhealthy, and it can be unhealthy for a number of reasons, such as um, the design of the aerofoil giving a very strong adverse pressure gradient or contamination on the leading edge, meaning that there's kind of more instabilities within the flow. All these things reduce the health of the boundary layer and mean that it's more likely to separate detach from the surface before it reaches the trailing edge of the aerofoil. And as soon as you have that boundary layer starting to peel away from the surface, then you you lose lift and you get more drag. And typically they both come together. So that's bad for your wind turbine on two counts. Uh, Loss of lift and increase in drag will both reduce your AEP. So what a vortex generator does, as you were saying earlier, it kind of helps to stick that flow back down. So you can imagine that that vortex that's being created behind the fin. It's got a very low pressure core that's helping to suck high energy fluid down to the surface. So you're bringing down this high energy fluid, you're giving that boundary layer a real kind of kick of energy. And that means that it can remain fully attached for much longer. So if if you have your boundary layer more fully attached, then you will get a a recovery of any lift that you are losing. And you typically also reduce uh, the drag because you haven't got this big, thick boundary layer that's that's coming off the trailing edge.
0: So essentially the money you're making off of wind turbine, mean, the power you're producing is directly related to that boundary layer. And if that boundary layer gets turbulent or gets messy, you're losing money straight up.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that kind of that word messy is, is quite relevant here because it kind of talks about, the flow. The flow actually looks messy if you look at it in a, in a wind tunnel. But also it kind of links to the things that cause it. And messy, you know, a leading edge can look messy. It can be eroded. It can have dirt on it. It can have bugs or dust, whatever. That's messy. That gives you a messy flow, a messy boundary layer. And it does mean you lose AP. So, you know, vortex generators are, are a powerful tool because you can use them all over the blade. You can use them down in the root and you can use them out towards the tip. And they're both doing, the VG's are still doing the same job. They're creating their vortex, they're reducing separation. But the really interesting thing is what is causing that separation. So down in the root of the blade, it's typically because the aerofoils are very thick. Um, they have strong adverse pressure gradients, the boundary layer can't stay attached. So it's a, it's a geometry thing, it's a shape thing. Whereas out at the tip, uh, the boundary layer typically will be fully attached unless the blade gets dirty or eroded. So in those situations, the VG is there, not because there's something fundamentally wrong with the design of the aerofoil, but because the aerofoil is being contaminated and the health of that boundary layer is decreased. So the VG is, is recovering losses uh, when it's out towards the tip if a blade
0: has leading edge erosion and pretty much all blades have some level of leading edge erosion that immediately makes the boundary layer messy, right? That just, there's no way to get around that. It's going to be messy. Do VGs correct that or can they bring back or restore the losses that you would have have from leading edge
3: erosion? Yes. Whoa. Okay. That's, That's a really important quality. So yes, when you have that erosion, that contamination, uh, you lose performance, you lose lift. The VG recovers that lift back, which means you get your AEP back.
0: So not only can you maintain your AEP, the the especially with the dragon scales, the dragon scales will give you
3: more AEP than the original blade would, right? Yes. So so your dragon scale VGs. Let's say you had a blade with a regular VG layout, standard VG layout, that will recover AEP. Your AEP will look better than the turbine did without the VGs. With the dragon scales, uh, we see the potential uh, to get another half percent or so AEP. So let's say the blade today has a VG layout from Power Curve, state of the art, it will recover you 2% AEP, 2% more AEP than you were before. Put the dragon scale on, hopefully around the 2.5% AEP number.
0: Okay. Those are big numbers. If you think about 1%, can be a lot uh, in terms of revenue, uh, power production and revenue from a, a single wind turbine generator.
3: Yeah. The amount of energy that a turbine produces in a year is huge. Um, so 1% can be really, really valuable. Um, so we've seen a lot of very attractive business cases. If you can only add half a percent AEP, that's that's still a good business case.
0: Right. So your return on investment is what typically? How, how many months? normally
3: we, uh, we typically work in years but not many years so kind of two to three years um is often the kind of return investment we see with with a lot of projects it's it's really as you can imagine it's very heavily dependent on power price um and that varies massively around the world so so the more you get paid for your energy the quicker you'll pay back
0: well with the recent prices jumping in electricity prices are jumping, at least in the United States and probably around the rest of the world. It should be, <laughs> the return on investment should be really, really good. Uh, I think the price of electricity in the near future is not going down, right? It's, uh, so is it easier? Can you can you install these these Dragon scales on the, do you have to bring the blades down to install them or can you s- install them up tower?
3: Yeah, up tower is absolutely fine. So the actual installation process will Will be exactly the same as um, as any other VG that we that we have today. So most of our installs that we do at Power Curve, they're from Rope Access. Um, so the process with the Dragon Scale would, would be the same. Uh, we actually have um, an installation that's uh, just happened in Denmark as um, as the first trial installation of this product in the field. Looks great, looks really cool out on the blade. Um, so we're looking forward to gather some, some more data from that. And, um, yeah, then we'll be out there hunting for some, some launch customers that we can discuss, you know, the potential of these products and what they could uh, do for their fleet. And there's a lot of
0: repowering projects going on in the United States at the moment. Does this make sense if you're repowering
3: to put on Dragon Scales, especially if, since you have the blades on the ground? Yeah, I mean, I think I would say that um anytime you have a blade on the ground should absolutely assess the potential for for upgrades so it could be Vgs uh, goni flaps serrations lightning protection you know any of these upgrades um, that are going to improve the blades uh, performance and its uh, robustness you should look at doing it on the ground because obviously it's a lot cheaper it's a lot easier so I'd really encourage any operator who has a repowering project coming up or a reblading whatever, Give, um, give Power curve a call, um, and we can talk about the potential for, for upgrading that blade.
0: Definitely so. Yeah, if if you're repowering a project in the next year or two, it makes a lot of sense to, to at least look at the Dragon Scales as a potential uh, money producer. That's what it is. It's just going to produce you more money. and. that's the goal of of running these wind turbines is to have a profitable business and it it makes a lot of sense so if if anybody's interested i think check out PowerCur's website you can reach out to nicholas directly i think via linkedin just checked out his linkedin page you can reach him there and uh yeah
3: it it looks like a really cool technology yeah thanks a lot alan We're, we're really proud of it it's been in the works for the last um year or two and the wind tunnel results were just amazing we were we were so pleased with what we saw so yeah, looking forward to the next stage of the um, of the product development.
0: Yeah, we're looking forward to seeing Dragon Scales are more wind turbines. It's, it's going to be a, a really cool advancement for wind turbine blades. And Nicholas, I, I really appreciate your time today and and really glad to have you back on the program. We're, we'll have you back on in the future. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you, Thanks a lot. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. Be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.